Hey, I'm Jesse, let's have a devotion. We're coming up on our final week now of Sacred Conversations. At the, at the end of this, we're gonna begin our study verse by verse through the prophet Isaiah. And you're gonna see these incredible links between what we saw in Matthew and what we see in Isaiah. But now, having completed the Gospel of Matthew, having seen the Great Commission, we wanted to give you a series articulating how. And so Pastor Mike wrote the sermon that if you're with the Redemption Church, you just saw yesterday. And I want to build upon the passages that he expounded upon, beginning with Acts 1.8. All right, in Acts chapter 1, we see the events that followed the resurrection of Jesus. The Great Commission were the very last words of the Gospel of Matthew, but chronologically, you could then go straight over to the events described in Acts chapter 1. Even though you've got Mark and Luke and John, all four Gospels teach the same timeline. They take place over the same period of time, arguably, even though they, some begin with the birth of Jesus and some do not. Where they all end is with the ascension of Jesus in Acts. So chronologically, you can go from Matthew right here to Acts. Acts was a letter written to a dude named Theophilus, as was his gospel, the gospel of Luke. Now, here's Luke's words, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Luke was not one of the disciples or apostles. He largely drew upon Peter's testimony to write his gospel, but he is now giving a reasoned account. Okay, the, the book of Acts is uh, a series of convincing proofs. In that regard, uh, I think it also makes the case that we as Christians ought not completely do away with evidentialist apologetics, okay? I mean, I get it, like I've been to the Ark Encounter and I've seen the speculative proto-species that Ken Ham and his team sort of said, like with this little disclaimer placard next to the exhibit, like this could have been the ancestor to the giraffe that we know today. You know, they admit that they're speculating and I get that. Uh, I also know that uh, when we take evidentialist apologetics in such a way that we're trying to give evidences for God, especially those that are scientific in nature, we're chasing a rabbit trail, okay? Um, I've not seen a whole lot of people come to Christ because I talked to them about dinosaur footprints and limestone in Paluxy. Yeah, I, I've, rather, what it comes down to is confess Jesus is Lord. And so I don't get into arguments about the age of the universe. I don't get into arguments uh, really even over evolutionary theory, honestly. Uh, rather, I base my gospel presentation and my defense of the faith on the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit does all of the convicting and all of the convincing. Now, that being said, we see God make the case, for example, over and over again in the book of Ezekiel, I'm going to do this thing and then you're going to know that I am the Lord God and above me there is no other. Now, that thing was the resurrection of the nation of Israel and God did that thing. And the purpose of doing it and calling it ahead of time in scripture was that we would look at what he's done and then know that he's the Lord God and above him there is no other. No other quote unquote sacred text has this kind of prophecy fulfillment record like scripture. So you cannot completely throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to evidentialist apologetics. 
the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, these were a series of convincing proofs. And Luke was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So Acts chapter 1, this first narrative that he refers to is this Gospel of Luke about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day, verse 2, he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. All right, so Jesus gave a series of many convincing proofs. Verse 4, while he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven. Suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. That's an apocalyptic prophecy in the opening verses of Acts. So Jesus reminds them before demonstrating in mirrored order the nature of his return that no man knows the time or the hour. Remember this from Matthew chapter 24? It's not for you to know the times or the hour, but you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Holy Spirit poured out at Pentecost. People were able to both speak in languages they, they, they didn't know, but the real miracle of Acts chapter 2 is that they were able to understand each other. They were able to not only communicate with people whose language they didn't know, but they were able to understand. Okay, this is critical. When the sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. All right, my Pentecostal friend, this is the opposite of what often hap of what happens when people practice glossolalia in corporate worship. Please read 1 Corinthians 14 because it could not be more clear. The gift of tongues is a legitimate gift, but it has its clear instructions in 1 Corinthians 14. And this is truly Pentecostal. Everybody hearing everybody else in his own language. Because to observe this feast, you had Jews from every nation, all dialects of Hebrew and every language, all gathered in one place, and they were able to understand the gospel. And so the work of the Tower of Babel is temporarily lifted and each one of these Jewish representatives goes home with a gospel presentation in order to prove to Peter, overcoming Peter's prejudice. See Galatians chapter two, he gets called out by Paul for going to eat meals again with uh, more ceremonially legalistic Jews. To overcome the prejudice in Peter's heart, God poured out upon Gentiles at Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10, 
the same way he had poured out upon these Jews here. So the very first outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts involves the gift of tongues, but that is not what we see in charismatic churches today. What we see in the book of Acts is people understanding. And this is why Paul says, I'd rather you speak five intelligible words than 10,000 words in a tongue. If somebody from the outside were to come in and not understand you, would he not say that you're mad? God's not the author of chaos but confusion. If you're praying in tongues, you are praying in your spirit. And it's better to speak in a language that people understand in the church. It's very simple, not metaphorical, not a parable, not hard to grasp, very clear and very clearly disobeyed in a lot of our congregations today. That was the case with the book, uh, uh, the books of First and Second Corinthians. That was a charismatic church that had gone wildly off the rails and was corrected under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit in those books. The two outpourings of the Holy Spirit that involved the gift of tongues in the case of Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 10 were to prove to Peter, I am just as much with the Gentiles as I was with the Jews. Who are we to deny these men water to be baptized? Now we also see another outpouring of the Holy Spirit that involves the gift of tongues in the book of Acts. But the majority of the outpourings of the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts do not involve the gift of tongues at all. Do not conflate baptism of the Holy Spirit exclusively with the gift of tongues, and especially not with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit accompanied by the gift of tongues where there's no translation. That is not a Pentecostal, in the true sense of the term, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and it is in direct disobedience to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 14. There are numerous outpourings of the Holy Spirit. This one served a practical purpose. Now they could talk to each other. That's miraculous. Then throughout the book of Acts, somebody's filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's amazing. Every time you see those words, filled with the Holy Spirit, like Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, and whatever happens next is awesome. Okay, incredible stuff happens all over the book of Acts. Do not mistake glossolalia for what's happening here. They do involve the same gift, and Paul strictly says, do not forbid speaking in tongues. But you remain silent in the church. You pray between your spirit and God. You edify yourself and it's private. Hence the term a private prayer language. But this outpouring of the Holy Spirit was a miraculous means of allowing every Jewish language a gospel presentation. That's the miracle. That was the first power of the Holy Spirit. To go home to your synagogue and tell them, Messiah has come, the Messiah has come, and it was Jesus, Nazareth. That's amazing. And this prophecy from Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, has a direct line to where you are today. I'm currently broadcasting from Tiger Mountain in Issaquah, Washington, clear across the globe from Jerusalem where Jesus said these words. It's almost like God's sovereign or something. Because sure enough, they were his witnesses in Jerusalem. Persecution broke out. Stephen was the first martyr of the New Testament. They fled Jerusalem, went across the larger region of Judea, witnessing as they went. And then, eventually, praise God, over here to the other end of the earth. Do you, Christian, believe Acts 1-8 is true? Do you believe that God gives you power in the Holy Spirit. It's empowering and humbling. 
it's humbling because the power is not from us. It's from God. And it's empowering because it's literally empowering. You literally receive power from the Holy Spirit. That prompting to begin the conversation, that move upon someone's heart to transform, that power completely comes from the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8 is true.